Welcome back to this episode of our podcast, Opinionated, The Current of Philosophy, a public philosophy podcast dealing with a diverse range of topics across history, politics, and culture. Hosted by John Camacho, Angela Tan, and me, Franca Haug. Hi, everyone. I'm John. Hi, and welcome back. This time around, we'll be discussing conspiracy theories. As always, you can find all of our sources in the episode description. Today we'll be going over the present state of conspiracy theories, the satanic panic, and of course the philosophy of it all. To understand how the term conspiracy theory came to be formed, I'll give a short rundown of the history. While the word conspiracy has a much longer history, conspiracy theory can be traced back to the 19th century. The political scientist Andrew Mackenzie McHarg argues that the two words merged during this time due to the scientization of society, because people began viewing a scientific approach as central, objectivity became a journalistic virtue. This led to the incorporation of terms such as proof, fact, and theory in increasing numbers of newspaper articles. Thus, to appear scientific and unbiased, a few journalists used conspiracy theory to deal with speculative claims surrounding proposed conspiracies. However, it was only in the 20th century that the term truly reached the academic sphere and subsequently became the mainstream word. It is also during this time period that the concept derives its negative connotation. In this regard, one of the most significant events in the American context was the Kennedy assassination which happened in 1963. In the immediate aftermath of the murder, the CIA conducted a widespread propaganda campaign, during which they derogatively dismissed and ridiculed any claims that didn't follow the official line as conspiracy theories. Before Angela dives into the contemporary state of conspiracy theories, let's maybe do a little round where each of us states how they thought about conspiracy theories before we started our research and also what your favorite conspiracy theory is, if you have one. Yeah, before doing the research, I thought that conspiracy theories were just these theories that people held for fun, and I didn't find much truth in them. I remember when I was young, I used to watch videos where YouTubers talked about conspiracy theories all the time, and they were pretty popular, and I found them a social outlet for people to share how they felt on topics where they couldn't usually do so. And one of my favorite conspiracy theories are about aliens, and I find it intriguing because something extraterrestrial interests me. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. John, do you have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's actually very similarly with the UFOs. When I was young, I had to watch television because that was the only thing that was available. And the X-Files show had um, a group of conspiracy theories. There's three guys, and they were single white men with bad hygiene who love computers. And they would just develop all these conspiracy theories. Again, UFOs, but not just limited to UFOs, but other things powerful usually they were government conspiracy theories so i I always thought of it as just like things that the government specifically was doing it wasn't usually fun it was more like living in your mom's basement sort of thing not a youtube thing (laughs) you guys must have been really excited when the u.s announced that aliens were real like last year i mean that was (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can't be a UFO conspiracy theorist now, right? No. Because it's part of the official story now. You can only be conspiracy theorists like about it back then. Now it's now now it's known. Now it's just true. 
yeah, I think in terms of my favorite conspiracy theory, um, just interest-wise, is the satanic panic, which I'm going to go... Like, I went all in on this case study because I'm very invested in that topic. But I think that's a very harmful one, so I don't think that's, like, fun. I think the most goofy and fun ones are the celebrity, like, the celebrity is still alive kind of thing, where they, like, have those, like, slow-mo shots of someone apparently surviving a car accident or whatever. I think those are great. They're so stupid. They have no bad implications, so... I really love those. I heard about the ones with cloning as well. The cloning of the celebrities. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) I even heard that one. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. So many people believe Britney Spears was cloned and it's not the real one. Like, it it is genuinely insane, but it's also not that harmful. So who cares? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but Angela, do you want to get us started on the present of conspiracy theories? Yep. Conspiracy theories have long captured the imaginations of individuals across the globe offering explanations for perplexing events or phenomena. Among these theories, ones that have garnered significant attention are the idea that governments are deliberately manipulating weather patterns, faking moon landings, population control, or geopolitical advantage. When considering why individuals are susceptible to conspiracy theories, it's essential to approach the issue with understanding. One explanation for the susceptibility to conspiracy theories often stems from a fundamental human need to find meaning and coherence in chaotic or uncertain situations. Furthermore, social psychological factors, such as cognitive biases and a desire for control, can contribute to individuals embracing conspiracy narratives. The prevalence of conspiracy theories poses significant challenges to societal cohesion and public discourse. Not only can these narratives sow distrust in institutions, They can also have real-world consequences, such as vaccine hesitancy or political polarization. Research underscores the universality of conspiracy beliefs, finding that individuals from different cultural backgrounds exhibit similar tendencies to endorse conspiracy theories. However, these specific content and target of conspiracy narratives can vary significantly across cultures. For example, in some societies, conspiracy theories may center around religious elements, while in others, they may focus on economic exploitation. In the Middle East, conspiracy narratives often revolve around geopolitical conflicts and historical grievances, with theories alleging Western intervention or Zionist conspiracies. Similarly, in Russia, conspiracy theories frequently intersect with narratives of national identity such as theories questioning the official account of events like the assassination of Tsar Nicholas II. Cultural factors play a significant role in shaping conspiracy beliefs, influencing both the content of conspiracy narratives and individuals' receptivity to them. Hofstede's cultural dimensions theory suggests that societies with high levels of uncertainty, avoidance, or power distance may be more prone to conspiracy thinking as individuals seek explanations for perceived threats or injustices. Moreover, collectivist cultures may be more susceptible to conspiracy theories, emphasizing group cohesion and solidarity against external theories. So I want to ask the question, are we justified in blaming individuals for falling prey to conspiracy theories? I don't think so. I I actually feel really bad for people that hold conspiratorial beliefs, because I think oftentimes the way it happens is that they kind of slide into it, especially nowadays with the internet. 
once you're in one community that believes one thing that is conspiratorial, it can be like something really harmless. It's really difficult to get out of it. Like you keep sliding into it. And I just think it's so human to like want something that gives you meaning and want something that also defines a clear other, which conspiracy theories do and also gives you a community. It's all like very deep human sentiments. And I think that's why we've always had conspiracy theories and always will, because people need something like that. They need a narrative that they and others believe in. And if we're not religious, we might as well be conspiratorial. It sounds like you compare it to a cult. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, like cult thinking, yeah. Like that, it was like, it was like you felt bad for as, as though it's like members of a cult would sort of just happen to believe something because it was, it was meaningful to them. I do think it's quite similar, except for obviously in cults, you have like a very strong defined leader figure. And usually in conspiracy theories, except for like QAnon, where you obviously have Q, usually you don't have one controlled leader and usually you're not like living in the same place as you do in a cult so i think there's like a bit of that but i do think that just like cults conspiracy theories are super isolating i think the problem is in cults people isolate themselves in conspiracy theories they are isolated because if your family member is like a huge COVID 19 denier you're gonna probably avoid them at some point and that's gonna lead them to like be isolated so i think it's more that so that's why i think it's important to have compassion but it's also at a at a certain point it's difficult. Like if someone you know is believing that Democrats are murdering babies in secret, like I think you're gonna have issues maybe like dealing with them. Yeah, yeah. So I love how I took it from like a minor perspective. If you're growing up in the culture of where a lot of people believe certain things, like let's say the Deep South or New York City, right? If you're around people who just believe certain things about other people. You, go, you grew up in that environment, you adhere to the beliefs of other people around you, you know, to sort of fit in, and you may not necessarily even do a lot of research and figuring it out, you just sort of trust the people in your community, then it leads you to just go down a rabbit hole of, of, of hating people for no reason, or at least, at least reasons that you haven't really thought about, right? Um, you just sort of piggybacked on other people's beliefs about something. Uh, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, haven't, I haven't thought about it like that. You know, I'm thinking about it about in terms of bad epistemic practices, right? Like, you're just not a good thinker, right? Usually people who are, you know, are the conspiracy theorists were not the people, like, getting excellent grades, right? Why would I trust that person who was awful in science class tell me about whether the Earth is flat? Like, you know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, they did a bunch of research, and they feel important, and they feel like, oh, I actually really figured something new, and I actually did something i'm like um you, you failed high school biology like you know but i do think that's like a stereotype that's like a tad it is, harmful it is, it is. yeah because i think a lot of conspiratorial like people that believe in beliefs like that are ordinary people they can be people that are very successful in life like i just can speak in the german context but there's a lot of like very right-wing conspiracy theorists and they're lawyers they're they're judges they're like everywhere in society and I think the issues is that we go into the issue with the mindset, oh, these people are dumb. That might not be the best approach because you're like, I don't even have to talk about this because it's dumb. And then that is an ostracization. Well, I'm not even sure that they're dumb, right? Like, like it's not like, so for example, there are, there are, there are some smart lawyers, but you can be smart at lawyering, right? You can be great at lawyering. You may not be great at reasoning about science, right? Or reasoning about um, politics, right? Just because you are excellent in one area does not make you knowledgeable about another. And I think, especially in, in, in the United States, 
we looked at celebrities, we looked at athletes, we looked at a lot of people. You know, they are excellent in their craft and they have a brilliance in their craft. But if you give them a, a, a chemistry final, they probably won't do so well, right? Like, I'm not saying I would do well either, you know, but I'm also honest about it. I'm not, I'm not going to say things about chemistry that I don't know about. I just want to know that you actually gained your knowledge. Like, you actually worked for it. You actually did something to, to, to get it. But if you're going to tell me the earth is flat and you're not great in science, like, I, I have reasons to doubt you, I guess. Yeah, I think you touched on a really important thing of like the not understanding something that is such a core fear. If you feel like you don't understand chemistry, but at the moment, chemistry is really important. Or let's just say medicine. I think that's a good example with the COVID-19 yeah. Yeah, vaccines, thing. Vaccines, yeah. People did not understand what was going on and then you need something to hold on to. And if you can look up your facts, your alternative facts, and think you understand it because it was broken down for you in a simple way. I think that gives you such control and that helps people. But Angela, yeah. do you have any thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I liked your point on holding on to something. And it brings me to the availability bias, which is where we use available images or stereotypes that we see from me memory, often perpetuated by the media and news sources, to estimate risk, probability, and frequency. So an example is the fear towards being eaten by sharks. Are you in danger of getting eaten by a shark? Well, if you can remember a shark attack from perhaps last year at the beach, then you're probably going to stay out of the water, despite its epistemic justices or not. So even if statistically you're in a greater danger from dying from overdose or a car accident, you're, there are distortions to risk and reliance on images that are often derived from the media. So you're saying that the media is spreading the fear of like a government plot, for example, or stuff like that, and that's why people are falling into conspiracy theories? I think if people are in a state of shock or paranoia, and they see perhaps sometimes news may distort objective facts, then they're more likely to hold on to that for justifying their own fear instead of the actual facts. I think that's absolutely right. Like, also reasoning from a place of fear just it just doesn't seem like the best place to be reasoning from, right? That shouldn't be considered like as evidence as whether or not there's a shark out there. And my my fear, we already know that sharks are can be harmful. We know that um, there's also jellyfish that can be harmful. There's also you know, um, other things in the, you know in the ocean that can be harmful, but the fact that we're more worried about sharks as opposed to something else, then I think there's definitely a sense of the media perpetuating that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Despite these variations, there are also subtle nuances that transcend cultural boundaries. Research shows the role of psychological factors such as cognitive dissonance and confirmation biases in perpetuating conspiracy beliefs across different cultures. Additionally, the spread of conspiracy theories is often facilitated by globalized media platforms, enabling narratives to transcend geographical borders and resonate with diverse audiences. In conclusion, conspiracy theories continue to captivate the public imagination to this day, offering alternative explanations for events that seem impossible. While susceptibility to these narratives is often rooted in fundamental human psychology, addressing the spread of conspiracy theories requires a collective group effort by promoting more critical thinking and the questioning of our beliefs.
fostering transparency and dialogue instead of political dissonance, I think we can work together to mitigate the influences of conspiracy theories and foster a more informed and resilient public discourse. Thank you so much, Angela. That was really awesome. Um, and it's actually great because like so many of the things that you talked about, they are going to reverberate a bit in my text. You're going to see like all about the global influence, the perpetuation of the media, the psychological factors and the meaning making. So yeah. Great. So I'm going to go a bit into the history of it all. Conspiracy theories have been around for an incredibly long time. So throughout antiquity, the Middle Ages, modern times, and probably even before antiquity, we can find examples of this. So instead of going into all that, because that would obviously take forever, uh, I decided to focus my historical research on a specific type of conspiracy theory, namely the Satan conspiracy. This is the belief that a group of evil conspirators are collaborating with Satan and are committing horrendous acts such as abducting, torturing, killing, and consuming babies, virgins, and other groups deemed vulnerable. This belief system, which has followers in Europe, the Americas, and Africa, and possibly also other continents, but those were like the main ones that I could find examples of, can be traced back to the early days of Christianity and is still present in our society today. According to the religious scholar David Frankfurter, across these different temporal and geographical settings, the conspiracy theory has incorporated the same theme. So it's the idea of, quote, a secret counter-religion bent on corruption and atrocity, unquote, perpetrators who aren't fully human, and the victims being, quote, abducted and abused or sacrificed children, unquote. The Satan conspiracy theory relates to and intersects with many other conspiracy. Uh, furthermore, this case illustrates how conspiracy theories are bolstered by tapping into the central fears of people, how they are spread by mass culture, and how influential and dangerous they can be. And so for that reason, I thought this might be like a good conspiracy theory to dig into because I think it signifies a lot of the things that are typical of conspiracy theories. So have you guys heard of this conspiracy or is this the first time you're talking about Satanism and Satanic Panic? My generation is really showing, but I've heard of a lot of Satanic influences in, in, in the entertainment industries with celebrities occasionally selling their soul or performing Satanic rituals at their concert and something with energy and dark energy and practices like that. And Doja Cat and Lil Nas. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Continue. With that, but there's definitely religious influences. So I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of satanic culture. I'm thinking of like folklore. Like I think the way you talked about it seemed more like certain cultures at a specific time had this. Like I'm thinking of obviously you could think about Salem witch trials, but you could also say other areas in Europe when when there were other witch hunts in, in the Dark Ages. You know, like before the Renaissance, the Christian Church was very much a, a Aristotelian. Uh, uh, Christianity. And um, during that time, they viewed disease as a as a punishment from God, and that there was something unclean about you. But one of the things that they did do was say places that, you know, wasn't exposed to the disease, they might consider particularly women who were using maybe like alternative medicine, right? You would consider them as something that was against God and that they were the reasons for why the world was disease riddled. And so, yeah, the church during the dark ages was, was dark for a reason. Yeah, definitely. And I think sometimes they blame the disease or the cause of the disease. And I think with the Black Death on Jewish communities as well, which we can now bring to this day where conspiracy theories also go hand in hand with discriminatory or anti-Semitic thought. 
You guys are spot on. You're hitting all the points. Um, the Satan conspiracy has always been incredibly anti-Semitic. Most conspiracy theories are, especially if you're talking about like the globalists, the cosmopolitans. Those are all like dog whistles for Jewish people for some reason. Like it is so deeply anti-Semitic and horrifying. And I think it's such a good example of how you need to have a scapegoat in society and conspiracy theories are the best way to have a scapegoat because that way you can make someone responsible for everything. Whatever happens, it was always this group of people. So you guys are spot on on that. So from the beginning of Christianity, as John has said, uh, satanic conspiracies have proliferated. The church fathers spread the idea that evil people were engaging in devil worship and conducting unholy rituals. Frequently, these conspiracies were thought to be Jewish, and thus from the very beginning, the conspiratorial belief was used to justify anti-Semitic legislation and actions. This imagery became especially salient in medieval Europe with widespread panics that Jews were engaging in ritual sacrifice of Christian children. The witch hunts that took place from the early 15th to late 17th century were also based on the idea of witches collaborating with and worshipping Satan. In the 19th century, Pope Pius IX referred to, quote, the synagogue of Satan, unquote, which he considered to be waging a war against the Catholic Church. Under his leadership, the church spread the narrative that Jews needed blood for ritual sacrifice. So yeah, as you can see, it has always been this like anti-Semitic trait. And what's interesting to note about this history is that in that time, it was usually the Christian church that was spreading this idea. But now when we go forward in time, you'll see that it becomes way more secularized and that Satan has kind of as a figure been taken into mainstream culture so people don't need to be christian anymore to believe in satan which is really strange because it is a christian figure jumping forward in time a bit in the 1980s and 90s the so-called satanic panic happened in the u.s and from there spread to some parts of europe australia and africa and i think if our listeners are aware of satan conspiracies this is probably the one they're going to be most familiar with it might seem strange that a conspiracy theory, which posits that society has been infiltrated by Satanists who conduct ritual abuse and sacrifice, was able to become widely believed in secularized societies whose citizens largely believe in scientific fact. However, in the US, multiple factors made this popularization possible. The first was that since the 1960s, people began losing trust in the political institutions and felt general societal instability due to events such as the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, the Watergate scandal, and just general economic instability. So here we kind of go into what Angela was talking about, about like eroding social um, context. The second was the rise of the new right. So this was a powerful coalition between conservatives, libertarians, evangelical Christians. This group just generally hated liberals, the left wing, hippies, you know, like any kind of civil rights activists. And, and they just saw like all of this as the moral decline of society. The third cause of the satanic panic was the shocking realization that child abuse existed. So while today we kind of consider this like a very self-evident phenomenon, it was medically only recognized in 1961 uh, when the pediatrician Henry Kemper coined the term, quote, battered child syndrome. In the following decades, American legislation began including anti-child abuse laws. So every single state passed anti-child abuse laws. This kind of public acknowledgement of the issue heightened parents' anxieties that their children might be harmed. 
And the satanic panic provided a really good subversion of those fears because by declaring child abuse like the satanic, subsocietal, demonic act, you kind of can avoid dealing with the reality and persistence of child abuse in ordinary families. And then finally, the horror genre introduced so many of these ideas into the mainstream and helped set the stage for the panic. The trend of depicting satanic cults and ritual abuse began in 1967 and 8 with the release of the novel and subsequently horror movie Rosemary's Baby. I'm pretty sure a lot of people know this because it's like a really famous work, but a short synopsis. So basically, Rosemary and her husband move into a new apartment. Her neighbors are part of a satanic cult, but they don't know this. And with the permission of her husband, short trigger warning for sexual assault. If you don't want to hear about this, maybe just jump forward like 30 seconds. Um, Her neighbors let her be raped and impregnated by Satan and get the permission of her husband, but all of them are like gaslighting her and lying to her about this. And so then in the end, she gives birth to her baby and it's Satan's son and also the Antichrist himself. And like, it's, it's a very weird movie. Following this release, there was like an endless array of novels and books similarly depicting the occult and satanic rituals. For example, The Exorcist is a really famous work in this genre. One of the most impactful works was the book Michelle Remembers. This introduced the idea of ritual abuse, which became like the core feature of the satanic panic. And it claims to be nonfiction. Everything I'm saying now is allegedly and has been disproven. It is not nonfiction. <laughs> if I forget to say allegedly at some point, it is all allegedly and it's not true. So uh, this book tells the story of Michelle Proby, who through intensive therapy sessions, as well as over 600 hours of hypnosis, discovers repressed memories of her childhood. According to these memories, her mother was a member of a satanic cult, and this cult endlessly physically, mentally, and sexually abused her for their rituals. Michelle's alleged memories are very graphic, uh, but some examples are using a cross to stab a baby to death, having to defecate on holy objects, being in a snake pit. Like, it's it's very graphic. And basically, she and her psychiatrist, Lawrence Pasta, like, he administered all the therapy and all the hypnosis sessions. They co-wrote this book and then later married each other. So he's a great, he's a great guy. The book was a huge success with Pazda becoming a so-called expert of ritualized abuse, which he defined as, quote, repeated physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual assault combined with the systematic use of symbols, ceremonies, unquote. It has been claimed that Michelle Remembers and its authors, quote, almost single-handedly ushered in an international panic over satanic ritual abuse, unquote. The idea kind of is that all these like horror movies and books provided a storehouse of images for the public to draw upon. So this is what Angela was talking about earlier, is that like media and uh, cultural works enable people to imagine these things. And they created archetypes which society could incorporate into their fears And in this sense, it's also important to talk about psychology again, because brains have been known to misconstrue fictional memories. Uh, So memories based on movies can be turned into factual memories. And importantly, many of the most famous accounts of people stating that they were subjected to satanic ritual abuse have been proven to borrow heavily from certain movies. Lastly, the final very important factor which allowed for the popularization and internationalization of the satanic panic was the enormous involvement of tabloid media and infotainment because they spread and they stoked these fears. To like understand how truly mainstream this panic was, the Oprah Winfrey show hosted an alleged survivor of satanic ritual abuse who claimed on the show that he had childhood memories of a priest impaling a child with seven daggers in the shape of a cross. So this was like mainstream, mainstream, and people were believing it. I think it's interesting with how 
conspiracy theories and the usages of them change and adapt with how society adapts. For example, back then, we can see conspiracy theories are used as a form of scapegoating. But then now, I think it's used more as an outlet for any repressed thoughts or that you've been having that you aren't able to openly share. I'm wondering, has the usage of conspiracy theories really changed over time? Or has there really been a history of repression that hasn't changed at all? Most of the literature warns against saying, oh, this conspiracy has been the same over time because you have to like obviously situate it in its historical context. Mm-hmm. But I do think that all the features are the same. And I also do think that most of the reasons why these conspiracy beliefs are held have remained the same. But I think sometimes certain features become more dominant than others. So I do still think today we're using conspiracy theories to scapegoat people. I think it may just be like to a lesser extent than in the past or less obviously. Yeah. First of all, all the graphic stuff from Franco was just, yeah, that was intense. Um, Because you just think about what's the motivation there? Do you really think they really believe these things are happening? Is it some way just to get attention? Is it just to get weird publicity? You try to like believe victims, right? Like you want to, you want to believe victims. And sometimes it's just people are just flat out lying or people are just fabricating stuff. I don't think people are, not all people, I think some people are very maliciously doing this for their own profit. So I think the therapist that I mentioned earlier, he went like on an international book tour. I think a lot of people were just profiting off this shit and they were like, let's let's do this. But I'm going to talk a bit more about the victims of the satanic panic. But I do think a lot of the people that were actually remembering, quote unquote, these things were victims themselves. There's been like a lot of cases where people were talked into repressed memories by their therapists. So if you administer endless hyp- hypnosis where you tell everyone you have a repressed memory of your short trigger warning for sexual abuse, where someone sexually abused you on your whole childhood in like traumatic ways for satanic abuse, and they keep telling you that over and over and over again, you're going to start believing it. That's how memories work. And so a lot of family relationships broke down and some till this day haven't healed. And it's, it's horrifying. I don't see them as perpetrators. I think I see them as victims. And I do think a lot of people genuinely believe this stuff, which is sad. I, I sort of mentioned this to Angela before, but like one of the things that is interesting about conspiracy theories, we compare, compare conspiracy theories to other sort of pseudosciences like astrology. You know, I mean, tarot card readings, you think of like healing metaphysical crystals or something. That's another sense of like... Where, you know, you think that's probably a lot of pseudoscience, a lot of just crap, but people make profit out of it. People people make a living being a tarot card reader. People make a living, open up a crystal shop, and, and people and people buy it. People buy the hell out of it. I actually love reading tarot cards, so I take a little personal offense to this. No, but I... <laughs> sorry, sorry. I... <laughs> that's all right. No, I, I think... <laughs> yeah, like, you know, if you say you, if you, say you love tarot cards... Versus I love conspiracy theories. You get two different looks, you know? Yeah. You know, you get two different looks. People treat you differently. You can say, oh, yeah, I love tarot cards. And they're like, oh, that's a little cute. That's a little fun. You say you love conspiracy theories. They're looking at you like, like, what's wrong with you? Right. Yeah, but I do think tarot cards are very, they're not harmful, in my opinion. I've not come across a case. I'm also horrible at like laying them, I just want to say, like I have to use a manual every time. I'm not like an expert. Philosophy it is fun. Cards. Oh, we got here. We finally got here. Next episode. <laughs> no, but, um, I do think that's not harmful. 
you know what I mean? Like that and astrology, I do think they're like meaning making things, but I don't think they're harmful, at least as far as I'm aware. And I think that's the difference to conspiracy theories. They can be very harmful. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it's also how you use it, right? If I believe that, like, let's say the child isn't mine, and I, and I, instead of going to science, I use tarot cards, and I'm going to kill the baby if, I, <laughs> if the tarot cards tell me so, you know, it's harmful, right? But if I have a conspiracy theory, if people just believe the earth is flat, and they're just sitting around thinking that, how much harmful is that compared to the tarot card reading? But yeah, I, I, I do think generally they're probably less harmful, but I do think it, you have to look at each particular one, right? And how, and how people use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like, John, your point on science. And I think it's similar to how people back then, they believed there was a moral conflation of disease with being morally polluted. And I think that's still perpetuated to this day in our social and conscious, where we see with COVID-19, if we see a person coughing or being sick, we would immediately have the instinct to move away from them and separate ourselves from them. And I think that's the point with conspiracy theories. We still hold them to this day, regardless of the science or the progress we've made with technology. People still see tarot cards or even astrology as ways of interpreting life. So I think regardless of how advanced we are, are as a society, there are some beliefs that are deeply entrenched in our collective unconscious to this day. Yeah, yeah. definitely. The listeners can't see our uh, videos, but we were nodding profusely at what Angela was saying. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, sorry, John, you're muted. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Like, they are deeply entrenched into the culture that you really you really can't escape it. Like, it's really hard to sort of ignore it. Um, you know, you could say you don't want to talk about astrology, but, you know, someone's going to bring it up to you. Someone's going to ask you that question. Or, um, someone's going to ask you, do you really believe that the government's telling you all the truth? And you just think, God damn it, now I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'd actually be super interested in, like, the gender differences. Because I know there's, like, the stereotype only women believe in, and mainly queer women believe in astrology. And I think there's also this idea that like men are more prone to conspiracy theories, but I I would be really interested in seeing the gender breakdown because I don't know if it's that clear. But yeah, you guys made amazing points. I just want to add one thing in terms of the uh, breakdown of like statistics. I remember in terms of the demographics and one of the things that I know was true was that it did not matter how educated you were. Education was not one of the factors in, in, in terms of whether or not you believe that conspiracy theory, but it did mention how people with sort of suspicious or paranoid personalities. So, so it didn't break down in race or gender or even education. The main sort of proponent, if you believed in conspiracy theories, was usually uh, a suspicious or paranoid personality. And if you had that, that was sufficient, and so I, I we'll we'll put it in the uh, in the list of, of papers. But I definitely remember seeing that that it had nothing to do with race and gender, at least for conspiracy theories. Now, you know, astrology or, or 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 other stuff like I mean, I mean, guys may not believe in astrology, but they 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 know their sign. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you know, they, they know their sign. Like they've been they've been asked by enough women. What is your yeah, but that's just a ploy. That's a ploy <laughs> to date women. That's yeah, that not... may, exactly, exactly. So, in that sense, it may not be the most genuine beliefs. 
I also just wanted to say to the thing you just said about paranoid people being like the most prone to believe in conspiracy theories. I don't know that study, but I read a different study that was looking at spirituality as an indicator. And they found that if you're a spiritual person, you don't have to be religious, you just have to be spiritual, then you're more likely. So like if you're very paranoid and very spiritual... You're probably a conspiracy theorist, so <laughs> something to interrogate. No, but studies are obviously difficult to like judge how good they are. So whenever we use statistics, just use it with a grain of salt because science is complicated. But yeah, so the satanic panic. So what did the 1980s and 90s satanic panic actually look like? The features, as I've mentioned a couple times now, were very similar to many of the older satanic panics, but two features were very new. First, the idea of repressed memories of childhood abuse, which could only be detected by therapists. And secondly, and more importantly, in my opinion, that the panic was spearheaded by secular rather than Christian groups, such as social workers and therapists. So those were the main groups of people that were like going on talk shows saying this is happening. And the central event, which is said to have ushered in this panic, was the McMartin school case. So in 1983, a mother named Judy Johnson called the police, again, sorry, trigger warning, sexual assault, claiming that her two-year-old son, Matthew, had suffered sexual abuse at the hands of an employee, Ray Bucky, at the McMartin Preschool in California. After intense interviews of many school children using controversial interrogation methods, the police claimed that they had discovered an underground satanic cult conducting ritual abuse on dozens of children. And it's important to note in this, again, that like basically all children stated in the beginning nothing happened. And then they kind of threw like hours of interrogation that involved the guy that I mentioned earlier, like Michelle's therapist, he was very involved in this. Suddenly everyone was like, yes, this whole school has abused us. They arrested several employees and the school was shut down. This case, which has since been debunked, made international headlines and inspired hundreds of similar cases. Most were centered around kindergartens and schools. Through the news, international releases of books and movies, as well as tours of so-called satanic cult experts, the satanic panic spread from the US to Canada, Europe, Australia, and parts of Africa. An especially extreme case occurred in 1990s Kenya, where at least 60 people burned to death because youth tried to rid their town of the alleged satanic witches, which were thought to abduct children, engage in cannibalism, and conducting satanic rituals. So yeah, this kind of brings me to the effects of these panics. So I think it's really important to examine the effects they have as it shows that it's not just like stupid horseplay to make fun of, but also it has real horrifying effects. Um, and the central victims of the panic were those accused of being Satanists. So many innocent people were arrested and prosecuted for crimes that just didn't happen. Their lives were destroyed by these false ex accusations with them becoming social outcasts and family bonds breaking down. Some studies claim that thousands of people got wrongly accused of satanic ritual abuse worldwide just in the 80s and 90s. In the most serious cases, such as the one in Kenya, people even got murdered. Moreover, the people who regain alleged repressed memories are also victims of the panic uh, because they might come to mistrust their brain and those around them, as well as having to deal with the PTSD from these traumatic memories that they perceive to be real. So I do think it's just important to like keep that in mind. In the 1990s, the panic slowly started subsiding. The public began being more skeptic about the idea of satanic cults. Many of the people accused of ritual abuse were released and their verdicts were overturned. The epidemic of horror movies and books centering satanic cults halted. And what I think is the most important thing is that 9-11 happened and it provided the US and Western Europe with a new convenient other and scapegoat to be panicked about. So I think the war of terror was kind of the new satanic panic because you had a new 
common element enemy that was harming Western societies. So while this idea of satanic cults lay dormant for a few decades, it has made a very impactful return with Pizzagate, QAnon, and other related conspiracy theories becoming popular again. In May 2021, NPR published an article with the headline, quote, America's Satanic Panic Returns, this time through QAnon. The author argued that QAnon spreads the same fears, namely that a powerful cabal, in this case it's the Democrats rather than kindergarten teachers, is kidnapping and torturing children as part of satanic rituals. QAnon's central claim is that Trump is fighting a battle against the deep state cabal of democratic saboteurs who worship Satan and traffic children for sex or for their blood. This was a quote, sorry, I didn't say that. That was a quote from the article. Its proponents believe that 8 million children have been abducted and are being used to harvest andrenochrome, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, a substance which they allegedly produce in their blood when experiencing pain. This chemical compound is allegedly being consumed as a drug and as an elixir of youth. According to an NPR poll, as of 2019, 17% of Americans believe in QAnon, while 37% aren't sure if the allegations are entirely false. So that means more than half of the American population, again, statistics, not perfect. But let's just say this is correct. Like almost half uh, of the American population believes in the Satan conspiracy. This kind of shows that we are in the midst of another satanic panic, which as we've seen before is incredibly dangerous. QAnon is deeply anti-Semitic, using anti-Semitic tropes, and this can lead to a lot of discrimination. I believe that the rise of QAnon is deeply fascinating, not only because it shares so many like ancient features, but also because it displays how conspiracy theories have changed due to the widespread availability of the internet and social media. QAnon only emerged in November of 2017, but has since then grown into a massive, widely held conspiratory belief. It was able to spread so quickly worldwide due to the internet enabling everyone to prepare and distribute content without source or truth checking. Moreover, because of social media's isolating and polarizing effects, once entering a community of conspiracy theorists, it is difficult to be swayed the other way again. Do you have any thoughts on how social media and just like the modern day might be impacting conspiracy theories. I read a book called The Burnout Society by a Korean-born, now studying in Germany, philosopher. And he talks about how the lack of the other results in an excess of positivity, which can contribute to the environment of conspiracy theories. So basically, it's similar to your point on how 9-11 gave us a the other to use as a form of scapegoating. But in his novel, the author argues that there has been a lack of the other in recent times, and that has resulted in an excess of these fake positivity or this type of mentality, which could encourage conspiracy theories and false beliefs like that. Wow, that's really interesting. Does he say um, why he thinks that there's no other anymore? I think. He basically talks about the transition from a disciplinary society where it's a negativity, where there's prohibition and the idea of you may not, to an achievement society where people are governed by an unlimited can. So I think he thinks there is a lack of the other because we have created methods that ensures that we cannot suffer. For example, if you're bored, you can go on social media, and if you're hungry, you can order Uber. I think it's 
because of this social bringing that suffering has been eliminated, and that's why he thinks there's a lack of the other. Uh, yeah, the some of the answer is really, really interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that stuff before. Um, and that's a, just sort of a great theory because you know the lack of suffering leads to less people to blame. So, for example, I remember living going to law school in Texas, and I was talking to white conservative friends of mine. You know, they, they didn't grow up rich, right? I probably grew up more well off than they probably did. But one of the things that they would say is, where they grew up, they couldn't have something, they couldn't go someplace, or like yeah, they didn't have enough money. It would be like we can't, we don't, we can't afford it because the government gives black people all the food, or you know, gives black people all the welfare money, or gives, or does that, or does that. The reason you're suffering is not because of my responsibilities as a parent, right? It's, it's that guy. It's that guy. They're giving all the free money to him, or, or the reason why you can't go to that school is because you're not black, because they're giving black kids spots in college as opposed to white kids, and you know, or blaming. For example, right now there's a lot of heavy against diversity equity and inclusion programs right in colleges because they're looking at those reasons as things to blame for white white children can't go to colleges or whatever at least that's that's what their theory is right so what he's saying is like now we don't have anyone to blame so now now now, now what do we do now who can we look to and we can't look to what our old theories used to be where we used to just look at someone and say hey look the government's helping these people out that's why that's part of the news if they can't point to those people anymore then what else do they have to explain why they're suffering? Yeah, I do have to say I, I fundamentally disagree with the idea that there's not an other in our current society just because that's actually like my whole masterpieces research and if I didn't disagree with that, I wouldn't have anything to research. Um, no, but I, I, I fundamentally disagree. I think if anything, there's maybe too many others, if that makes sense. We've mentioned Jewish people. We've mentioned also Muslims. I think there's like a lot of others and I think maybe that's more the point of disorientation rather than not having others. I don't know if that makes sense. But I think in the past, when you had clearly defined outside groups, which obviously like this is a bit anachronistic. There's never been the outside group, but I think it's been more limited in past societies. And now you have access to the whole of the internet. You have your, your society is becoming more and more integrated. I do think people are maybe a bit lost because they can't find the common chord anymore. They can't find the common other that they can blame for everything. And I think I'd agree more with that rather than there is no other. Yeah, maybe it's like the main other, right? So now there's like too many others, too many smaller others, but before it used to be the main other. So you might say the main other used to be Jewish people or Cynthia Roma. Those used to be the groups that in historically used to be blamed as the main other, right? So you would say, who, who to blame? Them, right? But now there are too many others. So one other does not have as much power as it used to. Alrighty, and now it's my turn. Angela and uh, Franca have really educated me a lot on this topic, and so my my turn is to focus more on the sort of traditional academic side, the philosophy side, especially on conspiracy theories. And so, what I'd first say is that when I was looking through this, I'd really try to figure out what sort of syllabus would this be in. It's the easiest way to find a reading list, and there were conspiracy theories courses in psychology, political science philosophy, and even law, which I thought was interesting. Now, we've been talking about conspiracy theories in a specific way. Let's talk about what we're not talking about. You know, let's let's cut off certain things. So we're not going to talk about legal conspiracies, right? So um, legal conspiracies are just two people conspire to commit a crime. They, uh, they put effort into it. That definition is not what we're talking about, right? You know, there's the psychological aspect we talked a little bit about. What are the, you know, psychological traits that are more likely or less likely to believe in conspiracy theories? 
So we're not as much going to talk about the motivations, but we can always touch a little bit more into that. Uh, the political science aspect, particularly Jonathan Ushiki, is probably the best political theorist doing conspiracy theories on the planet. And his work has been really helpful. I've been reading his stuff. But their questions are really are whether or not conspiracy theories are harmful to society. So they look at it, and we've talked a little bit about that already, which conspiracy theories are more likely to harm society, harm governments, obviously, and people's trust in governments. And you can do a lot of social science research on figuring out has this conspiracy theory been harmful to this government, right? You can even think about not just in American elections, but globally, what theories have impacted electoral participants and voters, and how has that been affected? So you can't just talk about phosphorus. We at least have to recognize that there's a huge social science research also in conjunction with this. Now, in philosophy, there's different ways we can take it, right? So we can do the straightforward epistemology, the merits of it. However, you can also sort of look at it in terms of philosophy of science and Karl Popper. There's also just straightforward ethics. So this is a very sprawled out uh, debate that we're going to have. But I'm going to try to minimize this as best I can. And we'll start with philosophy of science. We'll start with Karl Popper. And so traditional analytic philosophy began early 20th century. You know, it's really sort of started with the Vienna Circle, where it was a bunch of Oxford guys. And also Karl Popper was actually born in Vienna, interestingly. And so you have philosophers like Bertrand Russell, Rudolf Carnap, uh, Moritz Schlick. But one of the things about that era that was just so important was trying to take all of philosophy and really trying to reduce it, right? Like, the only thing that was important was things that could be empirically verifiable, right? And so there was definitely much a, a way to take philosophy and bring it with science. Philosophy and science were going hand in hand. And Karl Popper's really at the head of that. Uh, and so he's best known for the falsification principle that scientific theories are not actually projecting truth. They're just not falsified. So there are two main theories of truth. One, the correspondence theory of truth, which is sort of the big one where it says that truth corresponds to the reality of the world. So there's actual fixation things out there in the world. There's a real entities out there that make something true. So, for example, unicorn. There's no reality out there that actually corresponds to a reality where there are unicorns. I'm sorry, Franca. I know she said, you know, you think of quines on what there is. How can we even talk about things like Pegasus or unicorns? He's going to say something like, there's a thing that Pegasizes, right? There's a thing that unicorn-sizes. He basically takes a noun and turns it into an adverb, which is his trick. But it's a way to sort of talk about the existence of non-existence things. And so... Obviously, around this time, there's people are really concerned about their ontologies. And let's be honest, one of the main enemies they had was Heidegger. So they were looking at Heidegger as the guy who says, let's bring all this stuff in an ontology, and they're saying no. And so one of the, what ends up happening is that there's not really a correspondence theory of truth, but what people call now like a deflationist theory of truth, where it's just something is true just for the sake of it being there. So P is P, that's it. There's nothing else that needs to be said about a reality or anything corresponding to anything. It's just whatever the proposition is. John, can yeah, I just ask a follow-up question on that? So that yeah, yeah, means yeah. that if I now say the sky is red, that would make it truth? Well, so what they're saying that there aren't truth makers. So there's nothing out there that makes it true. That's how I usually understand it. Truth doesn't depend upon any sort of outside reality. This is like primitive philosophy. We have to make the smallest claims ever. We can't say anything else. Ontologies have to be nice and pristine, which, uh, again, I, I'm not a big fan of. But one of the things that uh, Karl Popper does talk about is this conspiracy theory of society, right? He argues that conspiracy theory of society is when people believe that 
the whole world is being controlled by all these other sort of people out in the world. And in fact, that's just completely false. So this conspiracy theory of society is completely irrational to believe that all of the world's events are somehow being controlled by people outside of them. It's just really a bad argument, right? Like the argument's not great because that's not what we mean by conspiracy theory. We think of, you know, Kennedy assassination. We think of certain things that we've been talking about all day. We're not talking about every event in the world being controlled by a group of people. And now he says this at the time in like the 60s. No one pays attention. Um, it really doesn't sort of get any attention until David Cody. He has a book framing the debate. Karl Popper and the scientists on the one side and contemporary epistemologists, political science on the other. If you want to think of more psychology, psychologists have been a little bit more on the Popper side in terms of calling it irrational. So if you believe in any conspiracy theory for Popper, he believes that you're irrational. Now, irrationality, that's a whole different thing, right? We can go a little bit more into just what we mean by irrationality, right? So economists call irrationality when it's in your self-interest to do something, therefore, when you do it, it's rational. You can think of like instrumental rationality. You have a reason to do something that makes you rational. When you don't have reasons and you do something, that makes you maybe irrational, right? Uh, acting without reasons. That argument in itself isn't persuasive, but Cody's great at framing the debate between what is called generalist and particularist. So in contemporary epistemology, this is probably the main debate that's going on with generalists who just think that prima facie, meaning just on the face of it, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're irrational. Anyone who believes stuff, even a little bit right, you're doing something that's really wrong. And then the other side, the particularist who says that you have to evaluate each particular conspiracy theory on its own merits and evaluate them accordingly. So this is where I'm going to stop and want to hear your thoughts. Does having a conspiracy theory just make you irrational? Um, for me, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure if I could connect it to some points. I think Plato, he wrote, he didn't like art because he thought of it as a simulation of reality and thought it was not truthful. But Aristotle, on the other hand, he loved art and he thought it could be a cathartic process. Um, as for conspiracy theories, we can see it as a degree sectioned off of reality and that it's irrational because it's not based on the truth. Or we can also see it as conspiracy theories borrowing from truth and accentuating the facts of truth that is actually just hidden from us. This idea that you're taking some facts, some things that are actually true, and then sort of adding a mixture to it, right? So it's not that your conspiracy theory is not, you know, we're, we're all in Descartes' eyeball or something. We're actually taking specific theories about what's happening in the world and then sort of saying, is that true? Is that the whole truth, and is there something more happening here? I think that's absolutely right. So personally, I don't think any human is rational. So I'd say conspiracy theorists are irrational, but that's just because humans are irrational. That just seems more like a, like a, a dispute about what rationality means, right? If you have this like very strong view of what rationality really means, yeah, we're probably all irrational. But I think if you have a reason to do something and you do it, that makes you rational. <laughs> but I do think everyone has reasons for doing it. I think whether you think a reason is valid, that's so inherently subjective that I think <laughs> any person can be deemed irrational out of any 
perspective and in that sense we're all irrational no you're right you're right there's a difference between saying you did it for some reason or whether or not i think that that reason is good or bad in terms of evaluating on reasons now when he said irrationality i don't think he meant meta ethics or rationality i don't think he meant instrumental rationality or kantian sense of rationality whatever I really think he just meant a psychological disorder, like something that can be found in the DSM, the Diagnostic Symptoms for uh, Mental Disorders. Is there something in the DSM that says, hey, look, if you believe in conspiracy theories, we need to treat you for this? You need therapy or something? Like, no, I don't think so. If Karl Popper was today, would that argument still apply? No, the argument doesn't apply regardless. There have been some attempts to sort of defend what Popper would say today. Um, there are some people out there, we can put them later on. But yeah. The rationality part, I, I think, also leads to, like, psychological disorders, right? Because when I think of irrationality, I think of, like, you know, schizophrenia. Like, my eyes see fire where there's no fire, right? Yeah, but then we go back to what is truthful. And I just feel like to call someone irrational or to call in a decision irrational is such a value claim. I, it's just a, it's just, a, just a strong objection, right? Like, I mean, calling someone irrational right, is, like... You're, you're really sort of putting them in like in a whole different tier. And I think um, in that respect, that's not what we're talking about. Like when I think conspiracy theorists today, I don't think of them as being just irrational. I think that they may have considered things that were evidence that were not evidence, but I don't think that that's necessarily an irrational. Like I'm not going to put them in a straitjacket. Like, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned truth. I'm not sure if you're going to go more into that later, but um I do think that like the whole idea about a conspiracy theory centers around the idea that there's a hidden truth that you can discover. And I think the problem with conspiracy theories is that some of them have been proven to be correct, especially CIA related ones. So I do think it's like the how you conceptualize truth and whether you see truth as only what you have in front of you proven scientifically today or not. I think that really determines what you think about conspiracy theorists and stuff. And obviously like anti-Semitic racist conspiracy theories are never okay but yeah i just i think that's interesting yeah so i do think you're right in terms of the hidden truths there is and i'll actually go, go to this part now because this is a metaphysical question i think it's more of a metaphysical question what are conspiracy theories um and it sort of mentions or, or earlier but one of the views out there is that it's the official story versus the unofficial story right so believing ufos might today be a part of the official story you might think of the CIA experiments, the Tuskegee, MK Ultra, for example, where they did tests on, on soldiers. Those are now a part of the official story. That is now from the government seeing that those things happen. That is true, right? Those are true things that happen in the world. While conspiracy theories are taking sometimes the official story, whether, you know, regardless of what it is, and, and saying that there's actually a hidden one, like you said, like a hidden truth, an unofficial story. Something else that needs to be figured out. And in that respect, I kept thinking about how conspiracy theories are sort of fixed. What counts as a conspiracy theory really is like fixed temporally, right? Like so there's a there's a time frame when something is a conspiracy theory and and when it becomes a feel hard official story, it is no longer a conspiracy theory. I wonder if conspiracy theories need a relationship to function. We can go back to Hegelian dialectics. For example, the master and the slave, how we need a master and the slave for them to be in a relationship. And I wonder if for conspiracy theories, that relationship is centered on the government as the central authority and then the citizens as the one in the lower position or not. And since it's a mutual relationship, whether 
without the government or without the citizens, conspiracy theories could really flourish or not. Yeah, um, on the, in terms of relationship, that, I think that's that's spot on. For example, corporate conspiracies, right? For example, Exxon actually did their own uh, climate change research at the time in the eighties, found out that it, climate change was real, and then buried it. Right? Um, it doesn't necessarily depend on the government, but it depends on these different aspects of power, right? So you have people who have power who are doing things, you know, people who are not the way so the master slave or government and and citizen, you have people who are in power who have more rights or more wealth and people who don't have as much and have less information and less opportunities to get it. Angela, I think that's such an interesting thought about the dialectic. Uh, I also wonder if it's in that sense symbiotic, if both of them rely so heavily on it that without conspiracy theories, they might find it more difficult because we've already obviously discussed it from the side of society that it gives meaning. We've discussed all those things, but I think it's interesting to think about, does it bring anything to people in power or like the government? And I I do think it does, and I think that's why oftentimes members of the political system will enforce and utilize conspiracy theories. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I thought that was I thought it was really interesting. Uh, the the other debate, I'll do a little bit of a background, just for people who don't know what, what, what's going on in epistemology these days. The traditional philosophy, analytic philosophy, was understanding the concept and breaking down the concept of knowledge. Everyone had believed that it was justified true belief. That's what the concept of knowledge, well, those are the necessary and specific conditions for what uh, uh, what knowledge was. I think we got this even from Plato. So this is a very, very long tradition of this around, I can't remember, like the 60s, I guess. This guy called Edmund Gettier comes around, gives these cases about you have justification, but you're actually right in the wrong way, uh, basically. And that sort of spawns a whole literature of Gettier research, or just called Gettier research, trying to analyze what's missing. And one of the things that came up was virtual epistemology as a sort of response to uh, Gettier problems. Traced back to Aristotle, as we talked about, and um, it also has links with virtue ethics. So just like how there are moral virtues, there are also epistemic virtues. And those are the sort of cognitive faculties that help us become better knowers. That It's happening now still. Virtual epistemology is still very popular now. But also uh, we have Kassim who has been working on what's called vice epistemology. So what is really interesting about the sort of epistemic, the bad epistemic faculties, so just like how there are good epistemic faculties uh, from virtual epistemology, he argues that there are a lot of bad ones. And so one that conspiracy theorists usually suffer from, he argues, is gullibility. So the reason why generalists are right to say that there's a prima facie reason to just call conspiracy theories irrational or to dismiss them is that they have an epistemic quality of being gullible. And now it's pretty uh, controversial in itself. We don't know virtue literature. The way the virtues work is that the virtue is the mean, the middle, between two extremes. So you have courage in the middle, and then you have cowardice on the left and recklessness on the right, right? Like you have two extremes of, of one virtue. So for Aristotle, you don't want to be too courageous because that makes you reckless. You also don't want to be a coward, right? So in the middle, that's where your virtue lies. That's where virtue lies, in the middle uh, between two vices, really. And so you could think of other sort of things like knowledge seeking, and you might say curiosity, right? Curiosity is a huge epistemic virtue. And on the extreme of that, in one sense, is indifference, where you don't care at all. 
and gluttony where you care way too much, right? Um, you could also think of things like the virtue of independent thinking is to have some sort of autonomy. One extreme would be servile. And on the other side, isolation, right? Where you're not considering anyone else's view at all. There's another one I like, say virtual maintaining central beliefs. You might say firmness. And one on the left side would be spinelessness. And on the all the way on the right extreme would be rigidity, right? Where you either have too weak of views where you become spineless or you have too strong of views where you're just too rigid. And so these are sort of the epistemic uh, virtues of, you know, certain ways of thinking. And I think generally this is usually a helpful practice, like just think about in terms of what maybe believing one conspiracy theory over another, right? Like you might say, look, this one doesn't have as much evidence growing up in a community where people tell you what to believe. You might just say like, you're becoming too servile to your community's beliefs rather than having some sort of autonomy on your own. And so you might say, okay, well, you might believe those things when you were a kid uh, because your parents told you so, but you shouldn't just believe everything that they say. You should have some more autonomy. You should I move more towards the isolation part, you know, away from just being servile to whatever your community said. Uh, and that's where we can find exactly where you were epistemically wrong, right? Like this is where your epistemic practice went awry is because we can we can sort of locate it. Another one, uh, I like a reasoning from evidence. There might be carefulness in the middle and then recklessness on one side and then scrupulosity on the other. And so these are, I think, helpful to sort of, in terms of particular conspiracy theories, which ones to believe. You might just say, hey, look, you're not reasoning from the evidence, right? You're being a little too reckless. Like maybe you should be more careful in order for you to sort of justify whether or not you should have that conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, Wait, so it's it's basically the idea of judging every single conspiracy theory on its individual merits, uh, epistemic merits, and looking at whether they're checking evidence correctly and all that stuff. I do think, and I hate to bring it back to subjectivity, but I think it's very subjective whether you think evidence is good enough, right? I know philosophy is very much like, we're just going to discuss it and discuss it and discuss it, but practically, I don't think you can, right? Sorry, guys, I know I'm the anti-psychology philosophy person. You're hitting on something that's like, a huge different other rabbit hole. I mean, I wrote a, I wrote my master's thesis in philosophy, and that was an epistemology testimony, and so that I could I could see it sort of going you know going too far down there, but I, I think that's probably where a little bit of your concerns are. It's like, well, how do we really evaluate this evidence as evidence? Like, I mean, I do want to believe that like that there's some reality out there that makes things true. I'm more um, sympathetic to that view, but just because it's subjective, I think, just because it originates from maybe a subjective person, I don't think that that diminishes whether or not it's evidence, right? Because we have people every day who go on in, in front of a court and will testify, and that's subjective. They're reporting their subjective knowledge of what they saw, but we put people in jail because of it. Like, th those are serious consequences. And so we do take that subjective testimony seriously. And I, I wouldn't want to say, well, this is subjective, Your Honor. We've got to throw this down. There's no objective evidence here. I'll be like, no, like this is the best we got. And, and and a lot of this testimonial knowledge and all of it is social knowledge that we um that we acquire. I wonder if conspiracy theories in the relation to reality can be compared to memes. For example, memes they first start with reality, right? You take a piece of reality and then it gets infected 
and then it, it mutates, and then it goes into another form of simulation, which is separated from reality, and then it mutates and then becomes a meme to the point where it has no connection to reality at all. And I'm wondering if conspiracies are like that, where at the beginning there are some truth to it, but then it just gets, it evolves so much and becomes so mutated through different cultures and different um, terminology that it has no relation at all to what it was in the beginning. Yeah, that's spot on. It reminds me of the movie Rashomon, where like 15 people saw the same incident and everyone saw it a little bit differently. And, you know, you almost feel like at that point, it's lost. It's it's changed over time to so much that it doesn't resemble its former self and what it's become is something something new. And I think we do have to like recognize that conspiracy theories can mutate into other different things and they change. Now you have just whole different aspects of what that original one was. And while that original one might have some truth to it, it sort of just got tarnished, right? Yeah, uh, the last thing was just looking at how many conspiracy theories do you have to believe to really be called a conspiracy theorist, right? If conspiracy theorists have such a bad reputation, if no one wants to be called a conspiracy theorist, but what about a lot of people who just have like one conspiracy theory, right? They have like a few, right? They have a little conspiracy theories. I think socially that's a lot more acceptable than being called a conspiracy theorist, right? When we, when we think of someone as a conspiracy theorist, we're thinking that's a part of their character. That's a part of how they see the world. That's a part of everything. They're tainted all the way. There's no coming back. John, you touch on a very important point that like, I think every person inherently believes a couple of conspiracy theories. They might not even be aware of it. I have to say one of my favorite questions when I get to know someone is to ask, do you believe in any conspiracy theories? Or like, what is the conspiracy theories you kind of think could be true? Because I think you can like kind of gouge how people are in touch with themselves, but also, you know, how like whimsical and stuff they are. When do we call someone a conspiracy theorist? We we sadly weren't able to get into this, but I'm very upset about the label conspiracy theorist because I think it's like saying someone is crazy and suddenly anything they say doesn't have value anymore. So I think that label is really harmful. I think we should say this person believes in this and this conspiracy theory and obviously recognize the harm they might be doing, but I never think we should just offshoot someone as a crazy conspiracy theorist because that way we're not taking them seriously anymore. We, we're not giving their words any value or their beliefs. And we're also pushing them more and more in the, into that world. So yeah, I think we're all going to close it up now. Yes. Uh, thank you, Franka, Angela. You guys, fantastic, fantastic work. Yeah, thank yeah, you guys. It was really all. good. Yeah. Uh, much to think yeah. about. Uh, and yeah. thank you for listening to this episode of opinionated the current of philosophy opinionated is part of the oxford journal of public philosophy it is hosted produced and edited by angela tan franca haug and john camacho 